Hi, hey, hello, hola, ciao, buenos dias, bienvenidos, hello everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the What the Folk podcast. We're here, I'm your host Machido and I will be gathering you all and delving into a topic each week where I'll be digging into the FAQs so we can go ahead and get a better understanding of what's going on in this world and, you know, better decipher all of the noise and turn it into something we can all digest. Y'all know what's up? Let's go ahead and turn those what the fucks into ahas. Now let's get the show started. Dude, what the fuck? We've hit midway point of the House of the Dragon season one, and with tensions brewing, I couldn't help but laugh and reflect deeper on why certain tensions, those of the flesh, between relatives aren't as much of an immediate turnoff for viewers when compared to the incest that started it all in the original Game of Thrones series. So I took to the internet to dig a little deeper into our obsession with Daemon and Rhaenyra's affair and why incest seems to be more palatable so far for the audience and why some people are turning into such staunch supporters of it despite morality, disgust, science, etc., all arguing against the act. Brief pause here to point out that if you want to hear more about incest, um, What the Fuck did an episode on this previously, so if you want to go ahead and dive a little deeper into incest as a standalone, standalone topic, um, go ahead and check our previous episodes for that. But yes, I took to the internet to try and understand this phenomenon a bit better and it seems like most roads lead to what's called the female gaze when it comes to discussing incest in house of the dragon So the topic of the week is going to be the female gaze. And to start off, let's first define this term. The female gaze is a feminist theory term referring to the gaze of the female spectator, character, or director of an artistic work. But more than the gender, it is an issue of representing women as subjects having agency rather than just mere objects. As such, all genders can create films with a female gaze, but it is important to reiterate that the female gaze can be produced by any gender, but is a theory implemented more readily by female creators. When it comes to people analyzing the female gaze, we almost always see them refer to three points that Laura Mulvey makes in her 1975 essay. These points point out and summarize how the male gaze works and how and who it affects in film specifically. The first aspect is the camera. Then we have the spectators and the characters in the film. The camera and the audience are second to the characters, which are the ones who primarily create the illusion. But the camera helps by pointing out or focusing on what the male gaze usually focuses on. The physical, the action, the logical, and not the emotional or the spiritual. With the help of the camera and the characters, the audience is then shown and put into the perspective of the male gaze. A product of one of many male fantasies shown through different media. As Switz and Folly state, it masculinizes the audience regardless of whether they are men, women, children, or any other gender. 
gender. To balance out the scales, Joey Soloway, previously Jill Soloway, recreated the three basic principles that contributed to the male gaze in movies to fit and describe the female gaze. The first principle is the feeling seeing. When explaining this principle, Soloway describes that it is a way to get inside the protagonist, meaning that by making the camera subjective, they use the frame to invoke a feeling of in-feeling rather than looking at the character. In simpler terms, the camera makes the audience feel what the characters are feeling, reclaiming the female body and using it to fuse mind, body, and feelings as a tool to invoke these sensations to the audience. The second principle Soloway called is the gazed gaze. In this part, the components of the story convey to the audience what it feels to be the object of the gaze. When it feels or what it feels to be seen, to be looked at, to be the object of actions, emotions, and situations. And what it feels like to have to live with the consequences of being the object of the gaze. The final principle is returning the gaze. Here, the one who used to be the object says, I see you seeing me and I don't want to be the object anymore. I want to be the subject so that I can make you the object. In a sense, the elements of the story make the audience feel like they are the ones being gazed at, as if they are the objects themselves. Or as Whit and Folly put it, to switch the roles of the characters and the audience equally between object and subject of desire and gaze. But wait, that's fine and all. You might be thinking, hey, it's great that we just went ahead and defined this term, but you might still be a little bit hung up on how implementing female gaze makes Rhaenyra and Damon more acceptable than Jamie and Cersei, for example. Well, let's take a look, or rather a gaze. <laughs> Damn, that doesn't sound right. Well, yeah, let's have a look, shall we? At the core of the definition, the female gaze is the notion of representing women as subjects having agency rather than just mere objects. What that means is that women are not only pictured in a character or a role where things only happen to them like objects, but rather we see things through the lens of a woman as the subject, the doer, a participant, the protagonist. I know, I know, I know, some might be thinking, but Cersei was such a badass, and certainly things weren't just happening to her, and in fact, she was a main antagonist in the Game of Thrones series, and she liked Jaime as much as he liked her, maybe. And besides, both The Song of Ice and Fire, aka Game of Thrones, and Fire and Blood, aka House of the Dragon, were written by a man, George R.R. R. Martin. So again, how is one more acceptable than the other when following this theory. To that, I say, valid. It's true that author George R.R. R. Martin writes compelling characters regardless of gender, but unfortunately, Game of Thrones had a bit of a problem when it came to depicting women. Female suffering was constantly on display without showing much female pleasure or agency. Think about both Daenerys and Sansa's wedding nights, for example. House of the Dragon has also come under similar scrutiny as fans were shocked by the premiere 
entire episode's graphic birth scene. And, you know, it had a lot of people wondering if the Game of Thrones prequel was going to follow in its predecessor's fumbling of female perspectives. But thankfully, the prequel series seems more concerned with telling these stories, as in the female characters' stories, with authenticity, focusing on the painful struggles of women surviving in a patriarchal world while actually commenting on that suffering. Essentially, the women in Hot D are seen as people with feelings and intelligence. The focus isn't necessarily on what the eye can see, but on what the heart can feel, focusing on touch, interactions, and atmosphere. In the fourth episode of House of the Dragon, Princess Rhaenyra is coming into her own as an adult, and that includes a sexual awakening. The adolescent dragon-riding princess got sent on a tour by her father to find a suitable husband, but instead ends up back in King's Landing for some much-needed fun, which, you know, was a result of a grooming attempt gone wrong by her uncle Daemon Targaryen, but I digress. The episode follows Rhaenyra's perspective almost entirely, and helmed by director Claire Kilner, it's a refreshingly authentic view of what it's like to be a teenage girl sneaking out. It's difficult to explain the female gaze and concept, but once you see it in action, it's hard to deny. There are several moments throughout the episode where Rhaenyra looks at a man like a tender morsel that she wants to feast on instead of another person, and it's honestly a joy to see a female desire portrayed so openly. The idea of a gaze in storytelling determines who has the power in a given dynamic, so the female gaze gives the women all of the power. The objects of her desire, namely Daemon Targaryen and Sir Christian Cole, are put on display so the audience can see them as Rhaenyra does. They are objectified in the same way that women have been objectified in everything from James Bond movies to hamburger commercials over the years, because this isn't their story. It's Rhaenyra's. Director Claire Kilner considered Rhaenyra's perspective when setting up every shot. In the House of the Dragons built behind the scenes featurette for the episode, director Claire Kilner explained that the scenes were carefully blocked out to show Rhaenyra's interests, fears, and desires. In the sequence where Damon and Rhaenyra have a chat in the God's Wood and he offers her a glass of wine seated below her while she perches on the edge of a table, the shots were arranged to give Rhaenyra power and comment on the flirtatious game the two were playing despite their familial relationship. House of the Dragon lets Rhaenyra be a horny teenager and honestly, it's awesome. Princess, are you, are you hurt? I shall alert the Lord Commander. You finished? There are one, two, three, three sex scenes within the span of a few minutes, and they're used to show the various power dynamics in straight cisgender relationships. Rhaenyra and Damon get hot and heavy together in the middle of an orgy, but when Rhaenyra shows she's not an easy conquest and wants to control her own coming, he flees. Meanwhile, Alicent lies on her back and stares at the ceiling while the aging and deteriorating Viserys 
thrusts on top of her. It's her duty to produce children, or as Rhaenyra says, squeeze out heirs. Sex is something she must endure and not necessarily enjoy, and it's a brutal juxtaposition compared to even Rhaenyra's short dalliance with her uncle. Then Rhaenyra sneaks back into her room and seduces Sir Cole, and the two of them have what looks to be really great sex. I mean, after it took them 45 minutes to get Kristen's armor off. But hey, I mean, foreplay is different for every couple. Am I right? So, you know, mutual satisfaction is basically guaranteed. I mean, I should say hopefully. And there seems to be mutual respect. All three of these sex scenes are shot with a focus on the women's experience, and while there are hints of nudity, it never feels exploitative. Each scene serves a purpose in the character's narrative, as Rhaenyra claims her adulthood and Alicent submits to her own. Alicent's dead stare tells the story of her suffering far better than any of the horrific graphic scenes of sexual violence in Game of Thrones, proving that sometimes less is more, especially when it comes to uncomfortable content. Listeners, this week's episode is brought to you by Trollbot. There are lurkers in the deep web, and you can't always rely on your antivirus to keep up with the true scum of the web, trolls. Introducing Trollbot, a booster service made for all your electronics, programmed to shield you from unwanted messages, unwarranted lurkers, and fake accounts aimed at mucking up the peaceful feed you have curated for yourself. Now, you don't have to keep your account on private, because Trollbot's got you. It blocks and reports on your behalf, sending you a notification you can toggle on or off, Auto responds to all craziness going down in your DMs and also filters possible fake accounts from your posts and stories. To try a month free of all these amazing services, go to Trollbot's website and enter promo code FUCKERS at checkout. That's F-A-Q-E-R-S at checkout. Now let's get back to the show. See, this is why it's important to have a diverse crew in order to bring everyone's unique experiences to the table when telling a story that's especially this big and multifaceted. And it seems like House of the Dragon has learned from the mistakes of Game of Thrones by hiring more women to tackle some of the episodes that need a truly feminine perspective. Kilner and her team managed to make episode four of House of the Dragon feel like a much more personal story than anything of Game of Thrones, at least to my knowledge and 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 memory. And a great deal of that is simply because of the attention to the characters' faces and performances instead of only on creating spectacle. While Game of Thrones had dozens of perspective characters, House of the Dragon wisely settled on only Rhaenyra and Alicent, the two coming matriarchs. Damon is shown, but we rarely see things from his perspective, instead only viewing him through Rhaenyra's gaze or the gaze of the people who look upon him in awe and fear. He's a mythic brat prince, the potentially problematic object of Rhaenyra's desire. And it's still her story, and Alicent's too. (laughs) 
Happy Latine or Latinx Heritage Month, y'all. And yes, if you noticed, I did make a conscious effort not to call it Hispanic Heritage Month. And I think what would be really fun is if we dive into why I made this conscious decision and why there's such dialogue going on in the community about these two different words and titles for this month's celebrations. So first and foremost, what's the difference between Hispanic and Latinx or Latine, right? So Hispanic refers to people who speak Spanish or are descended from Spanish-speaking populations, while Latine or Latinx refers to people who are from or descended from people from Latin America, right? So this is where the true importance lies. Basically, why invite the colonizer into the conversation? So Latinx or Latine excludes Spain, right? Because it's specifically looking at Latin America within its origins. Whereas Hispanic, if we kept that in Hispanic Heritage Month, it would be looking at all communities and populations that speak Spanish, including Spain. So it's kind of counterproductive in terms of celebrating the importance of this month. So again, I say happy Latine or Latinx Heritage Month. Fun fact! We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. The new segment seeks to highlight and bring us up to speed on some of the trending stories globally, nationally, locally, and of course, in the celebrity sphere. This week's news segment is going to be primarily focused on what is going on globally, starting with Russia and Ukraine. So Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered to mobilize more troops to bolster his struggling military campaign in Ukraine. And this has been rippling across Russia as the military swiftly drafts new recruits and signs of discontent appear to be spreading. Putin announced the decision when Wednesday, framing it as a partial mobilization that he insisted affects only a small percentage of Russians with a background in military service. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu ordered an immediate call-up of 300,000 additional troops, even as multiple news reports suggested the real number could be three times as many. The Kremlin has tasked regional governors with overseeing the draft and stiffened penalties for refusing of service or desertion to 10 years in prison. Iranian women are removing their hijabs, burning their hijabs and cutting their hair short in protests over the death of Masa Amini, a young woman who died after being arrested in Tehran by Iran's notorious morality police who enforced the country's rules on hijabs and other conservative Islamic modes of dress and behavior. Amini, 22, died on Friday in northern Tehran. She had been arrested on Tuesday and reportedly was taken to a hospital shortly afterward. Amini's 
suffered multiple blows to the head before she died, according to London-based broadcaster Iran International. Amini was arrested in her brother's car during a visit to see family members in the capital, the outlet reported. She was originally from Sakez in Kurdistan province. A quick note to please be safe to protesters if there are any folks that know of any helpful resources or links to learn more and better support. Please feel free to reach out to this podcast um, and to this platform um, as we stand in solidarity. But please note that only share information if you're comfortable doing so. Hurricane Fiona made landfall in the Dominican Republic early last week as millions in Puerto Rico faced flash flooding, mudslides, and an island-wide blackout. The National Hurricane Center warned that the Category 1 hurricane was moving into the Atlantic and was likely to strengthen. Fiona was traveling with a maximum sustained wind of 100 miles per hour and was forecast to travel near or east of the Turks and Caicos Islands early last Monday night. In Puerto Rico, the full extent of the hurricane unleashed torrential rains across much of the island, causing massive flooding and landslides. Island officials have said that some roads, bridges, and other infrastructure have been damaged or washed away as a result of the downpour. Most of the island also remains without power, according to utility companies reported. Um, which is tracked by poweroutage.us. More than 775,000 residents also have no access to clean water. Listeners, thus concludes another episode of the What The Fuck podcast. Thank you again for tuning in and choosing me to bring you some entertainment, hopefully this week. And, you know, I'm always super, super grateful for all listeners, new and old. So, you know, if you want to go ahead and reach out to the podcast, if you saw anything that needed any corrections, for example, or if you just want to, you know, chit chat, you can find me on social media at the FAQ POD and that's on Twitter and Instagram and you know I am also available on email as well and you can send an email to the FAQ POD at gmail.com again I just want to say thank you for everyone for tuning in and choosing what the fog podcast and for joining the hashtag fuckers community which is hashtag FAQERS and I appreciate each and every single one of you and as always i hope you take care get your rest get your vitamins in and more importantly you know have a little fun this week all righty okay bye y'all take care